It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Good afternoon and welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad to have you join us today. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can text us at 68683. You can find old shows at 1160hope.com and, and the podcast, wherever it is that you get your podcast. So, uh, man, it, it's good to have you back today. I didn't know what you know. Last <laughs> yesterday, you came with your mom. You know, I didn't know who else you're going to bring with you today. I really enjoyed your mom. She did awesome yesterday. I'm really proud of her. I think she did a great job. Was she a little nervous yesterday. Yeah, little... she's still nervous actually, and she's already done with it. So. <laughs> she's done with it. <laughs> she's retroactively nervous. <laughs> It'd been funny if you like walked into a room and she was re-listening on the podcast. She had it on. <laughs> no, nah, she. Yeah, we. I tried to get her to do that. She's like, I don't want to listen to my voice. I was like, Well, I'm going to play it anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I'm really proud of my mom. She did a great job. Did you get any feedback from your dad? Did your dad listen? That's the big not only question. did he listen, he commented on the Facebook post and shared it. Did he really? He sure did. Oh, that's nice. That's good. Uh, you're like, Dad, I do this every day. Why don't you share it when I'm here? <laughs> I'm, o- I'm over it. I'm over it. It is true. It was, it was big for the parents that we were all on the radio until now it's kind of worn off. Yeah, right, like, right. Oh, yeah, I mean, well, you've been doing that since January? Yeah. <laughs> What's that show again? Seinfeld's on. Sorry. <laughs> I w- I'm going to listen to Sports Talk. So. Uh, well, we're excited to have you with us. Speaking of Sports Talk, up late last night watching the basketball game. I'm sure you were up late trying to get a kid to sleep. but <laughs> No, they did pretty good, actually. <clears throat> I stayed up late and watched the uh, Game 5 of the Warriors and the Toronto Raptors, and it was fascinating. So uh, for those of you who aren't basketball fans or who maybe didn't stay up and watch it, let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, It was kind of compelling sports theater, and so uh, the Raptors went in the last night up three games to one, so to win the championship, you got to win four games, so they needed one more win to win the championship. And the game is back in Toronto, and the thing hovering over this entire series has been arguably Golden State's best player, Kevin Durant, Durant, has been out with a calf injury. And it's a bad calf injury. And it's kind of like, is he going to come back? Is he going to come back? And so he came back last night. Uh, And in the first quarter, he was awesome. And they were just lighting it up. It was like old Golden State. Uh, And then middle of the second quarter, and it was one of the saddest things. He... uh, it appears that he blew his Achilles, right? Which is going to be like a year and a half. That right. the guy won't play. Like unbelievable. He's going to be a free agent this year. Like it's it's really kind of sad. Not kind of sad. It's really sad. Yeah, because he came back and he was trying to you know help the team, and it looks like he blew his Achilles. And uh, so at that moment, like kind of all the air goes out of the stadium. But mostly, like just picture yourself. They had, they had a picture of Steph Curry. He was on the bench at the time. It looked like Steph Curry was was. At least on the verge of tears. Yeah, right. Golden. Can State, you blame him? I oh mean, my gosh, it's your friend, it's your teammate. Right. I heard somebody say on the radio this morning, like you just assume these guys are like robots, right? Like they're definitely not. And they're just this is their buddy. They've been they've right. been in this together. So then, fast forward, you get the second half. Golden State keeps a lead the entire time until the middle of the fourth quarter, and uh, Toronto goes on a run. Kawhi Leonard goes on a run, and with like two minutes left, it's a Toronto's up six. All of the momentum is going their way. And this is where I want us to jump in because 
Uh, Toronto calls timeout, which was a weird timeout, but they come out of the timeout. Golden State down six. You've lost your best player. Right. Uh, you have every reason to pack it in, to just mail it in. Right. Uh, because you have every excuse in the book. Right. You know, we've lost it, blah, 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 all this stuff. Uh, they go on an immediate 9 0 run. Uh, Toronto misses the last shot. Golden State wins. Right. And now the now the series is going back to Golden State. And I was just kind of after the game, I was like, wow, that was an unbelievable game. But then what struck me, they always call it like the heart of a champion, right? You mm-hmm. gotta knock the champion out. But it really what it is is this concept of perseverance. Hmm. Like they had every reason to quit. Uh best player got hurt. Uh you know, Toronto's on a run. It's the home crowd. The home crowd's going nuts. Right. We're cold. We're tired. Steph Curry had nothing left in the middle of the fourth quarter, just tanked. Uh, and then he got hot. And so uh, that is a long intro to go. I, I would love to kind of take that as a jumping off point to this concept of perseverance. Um, it's a biblical concept. We read about it often in the Bible about uh you, you know, keeping going. Life won't always be easy. Persevere. How do we do that? Uh, and so, A, I don't know if you watched any of the game, if you were struck by it or how you heard it. So a little bit of that from you. Uh, but also this concept of persevering when life is hard, when things are against you and the importance of that. Yeah, I, I didn't watch it live. So it's always interesting watching highlights after the fact because it's, you know, it's always kind of being colored by whoever wrote the article or whoever's whatever angle they're taking. Right. Uh, but everything that you're saying about. Even just like the energy leaving a room or like just paying attention to the faces, you know, of the players. Like it was pretty interesting actually just watching the progression, especially when you're watching it more. It's like a highlight reel rather than watching it live. You're like, oh, my gosh. Oh, and here's where that you could just see it like a like a drama. You know, it was really kind of intense. It was really insane, Um, especially when you see them kind of juxtaposed with each other in, you know, in kind of quick succession. But I think one of the things I, I thought about while watching it is that. You know, so often when we hear like when we hear, you know, preachers or teachers or people at conferences, when they talk about perseverance, they're talking about it from the other side. You know, yeah. They're talking about it from a position of like success. So they're like persevere and you, too, can have a yacht like this. Yeah, or, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. So I think for the rest of us, they're like feeling like we're in the midst of blowing our, you know, proverbial Achilles heel like yeah. that. That kind of stuff to me is um, is hard because perseverance is like a it's a trait that I think everyone values. And it's much harder to actually live out when you're in the midst of it. Yeah. Because perseverance, when you've already, when you've already won the game or when you've already launched the business or you've already grown the church, when you've, you know, in hindsight, it's like this thing you talk about with like great sentimentality, but the idea of like persevering, like what's the thing right now that you're looking at saying, Oh, I'm never going to overcome this. Yes. I'm never going to be able to get through this. We're never going to be able to fight hard. I don't have, like you were saying, I don't have anything left in the tank. Like I think that, Reality is more true for more people than we let on. Yeah. And I think we deal with it in a myriad of different ways. Some people run from it. Some people just double down. Some people, you know, like the idea of even you would kind of tease this out talking about the importance of team, you know, mm-hmm. like when, when I'm in the, in the midst of yeah, good. true, true struggle and heartache, how often do we like isolate, you know, in our own lives? And, and that's arguably the opposite of what we need to do. We need to persevere together. And I just think. I think it's really, it's easy to quit. I think it's easy to jump to the next thing or it's easy to get despondent or it's easy to look at our political landscape or yeah. our spiritual landscape and say, screw it. It's, you know what I mean? Like we're, we've lost. And, uh, and I think for Paul, the apostle Paul to write about perseverance from the perspective of someone like chained to a guard or chained yes. to a wall is almost laughably ironic. Can you imagine like penning a letter and be like, Hey, keep persevering. You're like, isn't this the guy 
in prison right now? Like, <laughs> wh- like what gives him the audacity? And I think the simple answer is Christ does. Like, yeah. to give him the audacity when nothing in his circumstances would even hint at perseverance. Like, yeah. hey, keep believing. Keep keep leaning in. Like, I, if anyone had an excuse to throw in a towel, it'd be the Apostle Paul. 100%. I think his picture of perseverance. And the one of the game last night is actually really beautiful. Yeah, it really is. And you don't want to underplay. Like, it stinks for Kevin Durant and those a guys. Lot, and yes. They may very well lose the next game. But, right. man, it was it was so telling. 103, I could see it in my mind watching the game. I say, 103-97, they're down. And you're just like, they're done. They're done. They're, they, they're tanked. Their best player is You're gone. thinking that even from the couch. The crowd's <laughs> going crazy. Kawhi Leonard is just can't miss. You're like, right. this game's over. Right. And then to see them hit 3-3-3, three, 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 like, <laughs> it was crazy. And it... You know, as pastors, we often like make those connections and it's, it's so wild. Hebrews 12, one, I was just looking it up, right? Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off with the things that hinder sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Like yeah. there is something about perseverance. Life is not going to be easy. Uh, so much of it, right? How many times are we going to use a Eugene Peterson, right? It's just a long <laughs> obedience in the same direction. Just keep going. And I'll, call, I'll come up with a new quote. And I'll, I'll find, I'll find that quote someone else. So I love that quote so much. But it's just it, ba, ba, uh, sports is like political theater. A political theater. That's what we always say. It's just like uh, sports. <laughs> the theater of sports just gets you going and just reminds you of just things about life. And this concept of perseverance, I think, uh, becomes so important. Well, coming up next, we are going to talk about a new Harvard research study that says U.S. Christianity is not shrinking, but actually growing stronger. Do we believe that to be true? That's next on The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Online at 1160hope.com. Man, I love this music. I just want, it makes me want to talk fast. I'm ready to go. Yeah, he's tearing off his sleeves right now. He's put, <laughs> he's put on a headband. You guys, Brian Fromm is ready to We're rock. like mid-80s. I'm just swing air guitaring it like you've never seen it's before. Really, it's really distracting. It is good stuff right now. Oh, Eric came. Okay. came back for oh, boy. John's getting into it over there. Pump, in the, uh, pump fake. I almost called it the, like the producer pod. What do we call it over there? The other area. I'm not going to tell you. I want to hear <laughs> the, more called, versions no, of what you call it. No more versions. I'm going producer pod. Okay. And uh, speaking of pods. Oh, there you go. You can find our podcasts. No, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not encouraging. We that. always say that. You can find it online at 1160hope.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. <sighs> And uh, Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also text us, 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG followed by uh, followed by your comment. Well, there's a research, uh, a document going around, and we found it at thefederalist.com. And it's this, that there's a new Harvard research. Why are you laughing at me again? <laughs> I'll tell you later. <laughs> Which, well, let's, let's do this, and then we'll, you know. Chat some other time. Uh, sure, why not? We got no one. That's funny. This new Harvard research says U.S. Christianity is not shrinking, but it's growing stronger. And there is, uh, depending on who you listen to, uh, there seems to be these completely divergent beliefs about this. I know Ed Stetzer and others have done uh, some research that says, you know what? Uh, Christianity is actually getting stronger. Uh, people who didn't really go to church before, but might have said, I'm Christian. It's kind of the rise of the nuns have said that's N-O-N-E-S. I've kind of said, I'm going to stop pretending. 
uh, and there's something on. But then you get Mike Pence, uh, mm-hmm. vice president, who, uh, whether it was at Liberty the other day or at Taylor University, both for their graduations, basically said uh, to the to the students, your, your culture's against you. It's going to be harder to be a Christian going forward. And both those can be true. Um, but this new Harvard study came out, and I would encourage you to go look it up because it's extensive, and we're only going to be able to scratch the surface of it here. But uh, it's this extensive study that basically says, no, uh, while mainline churches are really dying out, and it kind of gives some reasoning why, uh, that uh, that Christianity as a whole is actually strengthening, and there are some there are some good signs going on right now. And so with all of this in front of you, I'm curious if you agree with it. And uh, yeah, what are your kind of thoughts on this? I mean, I don't have any authority to agree or disagree with it. It's Harvard. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, <laughs> sure. All right, Harvard. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I do also think that the idea that, um, you know, this fear that young people are leaving the church sounds more and more like they're just attending less regularly, which I think has always been the case. I think the trend has often been for as long as we've been tracking the stuff, you know, in their uh, early college years, young adult years, they tend to uh, attend less. And then when young adults start to get married and have kids, that's often when they start to migrate back. So part of me wonders a little bit like, are we, are we freaking out over nothing? Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think, and we've talked about it a number of, a number of different ways, a number of different times about the millennials draw towards the liturgical, the uh, tradition uh, and historicity of church and spiritual gatherings, which I, I think is part of what this article is kind of asserting that um, some of the mainline stuff is becoming more and more passe. And it's going to be tough to course correct, I think, in some contexts. But then again, like, I, you know, I don't know, we're we're seeing stuff not only in, in the United States, but a, across the globe where like, you know, where I'm at, we have the New Thing Network, and that's now a network of like twenty seven hundred churches um, across the globe that are, are building networks. And we, we've started things in the city called catalyst communities where we're mm. building bridges and partnering with other local churches that look and talk and act very differently than we do. So I think there's, if the church wants to continue, I think to engage particularly with a young adult audience, it's going to have to become way more ecumenical than I think it has been. Mm. Cause I think, um, Gen Z has, uh, in particular, a radar for um, territorialism when it comes to local churches, and that I just think they're not having it. So, churches that aren't willing to build bridges and link arms with other churches, even if they don't, you know, perfectly align on everything, um, I think we're going to have a harder and harder time engaging culture in a in a meaningful way. To be honest, yeah, absolutely. And I do appreciate that about your guys's network that that it is a lot. You know, remember when Patrick O'Connell was here, yeah, and it was it's all about like how do you uh, not just build your little kingdoms, but how do you hold hands with other churches right. and, and really make a difference? Uh, they, they, they cite in the study some of the work of Rodney Stark, uh, Rodney Stark and his colleagues at the Baylor Institute for Studies of Religion. And I find this amazing. They found when looking at U.S. church attendance that, uh, that the U.S. church attendance numbers going back to the days of our nation's founding, they found that the percentage of church attending Americans relative to overall population is more than four times greater today than it was in 1776, and that the number of attendees has continued to rise each and every decade over our nation's history up until the present day. And that's, I was shocked when I read that. Like, all we ever read are the studies that are like, no one's going to church anymore. People aren't going to church. There's going to be like this, you know, this remnant over here of still going. And all the research is saying, no, people are there. The question is, what are they learning when they're there? What are you, what are you inspiring them to do? What are we teaching? But this kind of, uh, this kind of um, call that our, our our nation is like just turning its back on church and is totally secular and doesn't care about these things just 
doesn't appear to be true. Yeah, and I, I wonder, too, what the uh, – because it's statistics are always a little squishy when it comes to things like church right. growth and church attendance. Um, for a lot of reasons, there's a lot of variables and a lot of factors. And I, you know, we talk a lot, you know, Dave Ferguson, uh, lead pastor of the church that I work at community Christian mm-hmm. church, also the president of exponential, which you've attended and have. have mentioned numerous times how that's impacted you. We talk a lot about, um, level one, two, three, four, and five churches and how a lot of times, like even in the last couple of years, um, the percentage of level four churches has gone up by like 3%, which represents, you know, thousands upon thousands of churches. So nope. we are seeing this, uh, this trend, I think in that direction. And I, I would, I do sometimes wonder like the, the Paul Harvey quote where he talks about, you know, we, we've been called to be fishers of men, but a lot of us are just keepers of the aquarium. Mm-hmm. And he, and he talks about sometimes it's just growth by transference. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's even harder to, to measure. Like how do we baptisms isn't like a totally clear foolproof metric. Um, church attendance isn't yep. giving isn't so like, some of this becomes really, really hard to track, which I, I think is worth talking about. But I do sometimes wonder when I when I read even just recent history about church trends, we get spooked kind of easily sometimes. It seems like oh no, everyone's leaving and everyone's abandoning, and right. then you, you know, ten years later, you're like oh I get, okay, I guess that wasn't really true. <laughs> no, never mind, you know. So yep. like when rise of the nuns, it's like no, people are just being more honest about what they do and don't actually yep. believe. Where historically, a lot of times the, it was attendance without belief. Because that was the cultural thing to right, do. Right. And when it became less and less the cultural thing to do, people felt less obligated to say, like, well, I'm not going to keep going yeah. if I don't believe it. Like, it used to be really good for business to be able to. Right, right. Hey, I'm a, I'm a plumber or I'm a whatever. Hey, I'm a right. banker. Right. To be able to say I go to church gave you a network. And also, it was what people were looking for. It still and works so, in politics. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. We've got stories to go on there. Uh, but I, I think you brought up something I think is really important. One of the takeaways to this study for me is... Is is this uh, one of the things that I get bothered when people are like the sky is falling and everyone, all the whole cultures against us as Christians. And we kind of get this martyr complex. Everyone's fighting against us. And, you know, there are that's just not true. And so I think studies like this help us realize, no, you know what? The the uh, the soil is still good out there. And, the, and to ask as churches, uh, how are we going to minister? What are we going to do? Uh, anyway, you can go, if you want to read this whole study, it is in depth. You could go to the myth of the dying church, how Christianity is actually thriving in America and the world. That again is the myth of the dying church, how, how Christianity is actually thriving in America and the world. And if you do that, we'd love to hear your feedback. Maybe you're like, no, these people are wrong. Uh, we would love to hear that. Well, coming up next, we're going to have the opportunity again to talk to somebody we've talked to before. Uh, Cindy Boston from Heartbeat International. Cindy and her organization is right at the forefront of uh, trying to help save babies, trying to empower women in the midst of crisis pregnancy. So uh, you're not going to want to miss that. We're going to talk to Cindy Boston next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. the common good on am 1160 hope for your life alongside ian simpkins my name is brian Fromm. we're glad to have you join us today uh and we are excited to be joined on the phone right now uh somebody who's been on our show before uh cindy boston from heartbeat international cindy thank you so much for joining us again today hey guys it's great to be here we're, we're always glad when people are willing to come back on the show so <laughs> we're excited <laughs> to have you and we have you on for a very specific purpose today uh, Heartbeat International does great work, uh, especially 
with all that's been going on in the news, they do great work in in helping women in the midst of pregnancy and crisis um, in unbelievable ways. And we are wanting to talk about something called the option line. And the option line is a phone number uh, that a woman can call if she has a crisis pregnancy and is considering an abortion. Can you tell us a little bit more uh, about the option line? Well, we know that the number one thing that helps a woman get past an abortion decision is another person. Option line provides 24-7 help to women who need another person to talk to. We, um, in fact, it, it's, it's interesting when you look at the numbers, we have thousands of women from Chicagoland that are calling Heartbeats Option Line every single year because they need somebody to talk to who's safe, confidential. Option Line brings that to women throughout the nation. And especially in the Chicagoland area, we are answering calls, chats, emails, and texts from women who are desperately looking for pregnancy option. Optionline.org makes all the difference for women. So one of the things that uh, you shared with us is that uh, it says every 45 seconds, someone reaches out to Option Line for help. Every 45 seconds. I had no idea the traffic was was that intense. Can you talk a little bit more about why, why you think that is? Why, why is this such a helpful resource for women who are needing answers? Well, women who are facing an unplanned pregnancy, and, and we know there's around a million abortions a year happening right here in the United States. And in fact, your legislation that was just passed a couple of weeks ago left us brokenhearted mm-hmm. that legislators did not listen to uh, Illinois folks. There was a great presence there at the Capitol, but the reality is women are not as safe. Babies are not as safe in Illinois this week. Um, than they were a couple of weeks ago. And um, Option Line stepped in the gap for those women. Uh, uh, Unplanned pregnancy is a separator for women. They feel very isolated from boyfriends, from family, from church. They feel like they can't tell anybody. And that's where Option Line steps in the gap. So if people want to help save a baby, they can go to saveababynow.com. It's only um, $75.00. To help uh, a woman every 45 seconds, $75 Mm. to help women for one hour. It's quite an extraordinary amount of return on investment when you think, I'm going to help dozens of women every single hour that I sponsor. $75 is all it takes to sponsor women who are calling in to option line. Yeah, and that we're, we're asking our listeners to do something very specific, uh, and Cindy just mentioned it, to consider sponsoring one hour of the option line for $75. Uh, and that gift of $75, as she said, could mean saving a baby. Uh, it could mean uh, helping a, a woman in the midst of crisis pregnancy. And so we'd like our listeners to think about sponsoring more than even one hour Uh, Maybe even one hour for each of your children or something like that. And so our goal is to get 36 hours sponsored in the next three weeks. Uh, So we need 36 people to sponsor an hour. So here's the call. It is to uh, go to saveababynow.com. That's saveababynow.com. Or you can go to 1160hope.com, click on the banner. Or you can even call 1-800-999-7408 and make that. You know, there's a lot going on out there uh, about uh, abortion right now, and we all want to step in, and this is an easy way for you to step in. Cindy, can you also, uh, last time you were on with us, you talked about this concept of the chemical abortion and, and the the amazing steps that are being taken to be able to reverse what's going on and, and the role the, this phone line and the option line plays in that. Can you tell us more about that? 
You know, Abortion Pill Rescue Network is um, a final chance for women to make a choice for life for their children. They've started RU486. They've they have second thoughts. They want to change their mind, but they've already started a chemical abortion. Option line is answering those phone calls. And the phone calls we're getting now have increased substantially, like three times the amount of calls now we're receiving than we were a year ago. Chemical abortion is on the rise. Women are being sold a bill of goods that says this is quick, this is easy, this is no big deal. But if you've seen the movie Unplanned, you realize it is a big deal. It hurts mom and it, it destroys the life of a precious child that has a plan for God, uh, designed by God. So Abortion Pill Rescue Network, those calls are answered by our option line. Option line is able to intervene for last-minute hope for women who've already started a chemical abortion through the Abortion Pill Rescue Network. We're rescuing babies together. Uh, wouldn't it be fun to see Chicagoland get 36 hours of sponsorship mm -hmm. for these women uh, this week? We are so excited to partner with you to say women are important, babies are important, and Abortion Pill Rescue Network is getting their calls answered by option line. We provide last-minute hope for them. Cindy, I, we uh, had my mom on the show yesterday, and one of the things that's a pretty beautiful part of her story is that she, with some friends, helped start a, a crisis pregnancy center in Detroit. And um, when I was a kid, these were just like important conversations that I was, I felt like I was always around. And uh, yeah. I'm curious for anyone listening that maybe doesn't, isn't familiar with your work or doesn't know, like, okay, how helpful is a helpline? Could you just give like a little bit of scope? Like, how many calls have you received sure. since you started? How, how many. Babies, as best you can tell, have been saved. Just to kind of give people a, a perspective about the, the impact that y'all are making. Sure. Um, option line is, is um, moving toward 4 million calls wow. uh, that have been answered since we opened around 15 years ago. It's quite extraordinary when you think millions of women are calling Heartbeats option line, and they're saying, I need help. I have a pregnancy. I'm not sure what to do. What? How can you help me? And option line, we do the triage. We help bring down the crisis uh, by phone, text, email, or chat. And then we connect them to local centers like your mom's pregnancy center in Detroit. Right. But we do that through, for Chicagoland, we do that for Chicago pregnancy centers. There are pregnancy centers all over Chicago area. And we can connect them directly to help and get them in most of the time on the same day. So if she calls today, we get her to a pregnancy center locally mm. that same day, if at all possible. If the center's open that day, they're there. We get them an appointment. We reduce the amount of stress a woman feels when she feels all alone with an unplanned pregnancy. And that's why Option Line is so critical. We step in the gap between the crisis and the pregnancy center. We step in the gap in the middle. We answer those phone calls, and then we get them straight to a pregnancy center that's in their neighborhood that's close to them. So you've been listening to Cindy Boston from Heartbeat International. And again, we're asking our listeners... Uh, to consider sp uh, sponsoring at least one hour of the option line that we've been talking about, uh, and that costs you $75. And for that gift of $75, you could literally be saving the life of a baby. You can literally be empowering a mom who's in the midst of crisis. Uh, so maybe you can sponsor more than one hour. Maybe you can sponsor multiple hours. Uh, ultimately, our goal here as a show and as a station is to get 36 hours sponsored in the next three weeks uh, that's obviously just 36 people at $75. Uh, 
uh, per hour, but maybe you can do a lot more. We would ask you to consider that. And here's how you can do it. Go to saveababynow.com. That's saveababynow.com. Or you can go to our website, 1160hope.com, and you'll see the banner there. Click on it. You can make your donation. Or you can call uh, 1-800-999-7408. That's 1-800-999-7408. Cindy, thank you again for joining us, and we're excited to be able to partner with you guys again. It's wonderful to save children right there in the Chicago area. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Have a great day. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can text us at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG followed by your comment. Uh, you can also find us online at 1160hope.com, or you can find our podcasts wherever it is, whatever platform you use to get your podcast. I mean, sometimes we do things, uh, we, we react to articles, but other times it could just be something like a tweet. Uh, and and you, uh, you came across a couple different tweets, but this was one in particular that we wanted to talk about. Uh, somebody by the name of Lisa Cooper. She's a writer, editor. Uh, and a theologian, and she wrote this. She wrote, a spicy hot take. I like when they start that way. Of course you A spicy hot take. All pastors, parenthetically uh, added, or others in ministry positions, should be required to do some form of continuing education every year. We make physical therapists do it to keep their certifications, and pharmacists, and lots of other professions. Why not people in ministry? That is her Spicy hot take. <laughs> Can we make that a regular segment? Spicy, Spicy hot, hot takes take. with Brian and Ian. <laughs> so, what uh, What are your thoughts? What do you think about that? I, I think she's right on. I think it's uh, it, it is when you frame it that way too. the level of continued education that we require for so many other professions, not just in the medical field, because it makes a lot it makes a lot of sense why in medical fields that would be required because things are always advancing so quickly. And if you become out of date with uh, equipment or with various drugs. I could see that being like physiologically very dangerous. Yep. Um, but when you think of like spiritual leaders, mm-hmm. faith leaders, it, it actually is a little strange to me how little most denominations and traditions require their leaders to continue to be educated. Now yeah. I, I, uh, I love learning in general. Like I, t- to me that wasn't really ever a struggle. In fact, a bunch of my friends went right, uh, into seminary after undergrad, right? And so I would, I would pretty regularly kind of bribe them. I would ask for their book lists. So funny. Buy all the books and then pay to have coffee with them, and then have them just tell me what they were learning in class, and then just like take copious notes. Just because I, you know, I couldn't afford grad school at the time, but I was like, I want to, I want to keep growing, I want to keep learning, and you know, I became a, a lead pastor way earlier than I was anticipating, yep. which sort of heightened all of my anxiety. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't have the chops to do this. I don't have the education. <laughs> and it kind of never went away. And I, you know, almost to a fault, to be honest, we, I was talking with somebody the other day, how poor of a job I do at like reading fiction. Mm. Like I, I need more of it in my life, but I just, I'm all, I'm always, I'm always kind of diving into either theology books or leadership books. And, uh, I, I'd love to do more <laughs> just like reading for leisure than I do. But, um, I can't tell you, you know, I've been a, a pastor for about, I guess, 16 years now, mm. and I am so grateful for the kind of that seed that was planted early on. Like, hey, keep growing, keep learning, because um, 
whatever responsibility you have as a pastor, as a ministry leader, uh, that that's something to be wielded, I think, with a lot of humility, but also yep. like with the right amount of um, caution. Like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to research this. I'm going to find out more. And I don't know. It, it is surprising to me when I talk with other pastors how how now some denominations require it. Yes. And so, so, so I think some are ahead of the curve on this. But by and large, a, lo- a lot of churches don't require any form of continuing education at all. Yeah. It. Man, I've been a pastor like like you for like 20 years, and I, while uh, young in the ministry, is when, like you, I went back to school and got my master's at Wheaton while there. But, you know, after that, uh, once you've got your job and stuff, it's really just about self-motivation, and mm. that's probably dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> because, right, right. You know, life gets in the way, and you go, like, there are probably, you would like to think, like in most professions, you would like to think that pastors are self-motivated enough to go learn more about how to counsel well, or grow their theology or grow this, but it just doesn't happen because life gets in the way. Kids get in the way. So on the one hand, I think I would put it this way. Conceptually, I really agree with her. I think that, that she is not off because I do think ministry, like, you know, teachers have to, they, they're supposed to continue their education and therapists, they said, or doctors, there are certain professions where you need to kind of stay ahead of the curve. And there's literally certification requirements. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so conceptually, I do believe in what she's saying. I just am wondering how this practically works. Now, you, neither you or I are in churches that are under the umbrella of a denomination. Obviously, in a denomination, they could mandate this. They could say, uh, if you're going to do this, I just, it is probably one of the pitfalls of the non-denominational church a little bit in that there's no one who could tell me, I, my elders could, but would they? I think so. If they yeah. believe this to be a value, I'm not that they don't believe it to be value, but if they believed it to the point that she does like, right. Um, but it, that's still a different structure than a denomination saying, if you want to remain in our denomination, then here's what you have, you have to, to continue right. to do. Right. Um, and so, but as a concept, I do, I I've, so shame on me. I've never actually thought about it really? the way she put it here. Um, but I think there's, there's great merit to what she's saying and to, to hang your hat on. well, uh, most pastors will be self-motivated to do this is not realistic. It's uh, it's not only not realistic, I would argue it's almost dangerous yep. because a lot of times, and that's not to say that there's you know some glaring sin that needs to be weeded out sure. via education, but just to continue to grow in this in this way, I think part of what's different in theology is we assume it's only backwards. It's, it's once I mm. know enough stuff from back then that history hasn't changed, why would I need to learn more? Um, that I, I think is probably an unhelpful way to, to think about it. But, you know, like you're saying, I see the merit of it. Yeah. doesn't mean I'm going to be motivated. Like there's a, a, a quote that I shared a couple of days ago by Jim Rohn, who's this uh, American entrepreneur. And he said, uh, if it's a priority, you'll find a way. If it isn't, you'll find an excuse. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay, that'll preach. So with that, I included this image that was floating around all over the internet. And it was, I, it was really convicting because it, it juxtaposes two things at a time. It says healthy groceries, a hundred dollars quote too expensive. Dinner date, $100, quote, reasonable. Mm-hmm. Therapist, $130, quote, absurd. A trip to Target, $130, great deals. <laughs> Average college class, $1,000, quote, expensive. iPhone, $1,000, quote, a necessity. You know, like it's <laughs> yep. it's it's how we prioritize um, where our money goes because education isn't free, obviously. Mm-mm. But I think it's not only that a lot of non-denominational churches don't require it. I, I'm learning more and more that a lot of pastors can't even get a budgeted line item for it. Correct. Like can't even get money set aside for continued education. So not only is it a matter of expecting our, our pastors and leaders to self-motivate, 
but then to also completely self-fund, right? Um, which uh, you can make the argument is how it should be. But I think if the collective community and the church and the church leaders say, hey, it's not only um, do you have to, we actually believe this is really valuable. You know, we're, we're going to, I don't know whatever percentage would be appropriate, but I think setting aside some dollars to say it's worth it for us as a community, for you, our pastor, Correct. or our team of pastors, to continue to grow and learn, and so we're going to take away the the built in excuse of I can't afford it, right? And right. We're going to build in the time to, that you're going to need to do it, right? Time like, off and time away. Right. And it's all one that. thing to tell your pastor like, hey, you should go get more education. It's another thing to provide the not just some of the finances, at least, but also the freedom, the flexibility That's a good point. Uh, to be able to do this. So I think it's good. You know, the more I th- I've just never really thought about it. So the more I thought about this as we're talking, there aren't many jobs where you're going to be successful if you don't keep growing and keep educating and keep learning what's kind of coming. And, and that was a really good point you made that often in theology as pastors, it's all about looking back. So there's nothing more to learn. And that's just not the case. Yeah. Well, I think in particular, like you're saying, if it is a matter of success, maybe it's a false sense of job security that, yep. if, oh, I get a pastor job that I'm like set. I don't need to grow. So like some of the other examples that you were talking about, there isn't a certification process, but someone who's an entrepreneur knows that like, hey, no one's breathing down my neck to make this yep. happen. I will, I will be obsolete, though, in 10 years if I don't actually get ahead of the curve on this. Absolutely. One. So a great tweet that really got us thinking. Uh, we'd love your feedback. You can do so on Facebook or uh, at the text line. Well, for Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're excited that you're joining us today. Uh, You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Online at 1160hope.com. You can find our podcast uh, on all uh, podcast platforms. We ask that you subscribe, you rate it, review. And uh, you can also text us at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG followed by the comment. And the reason that we've got the Facebook page and the text line is to interact with you about uh, topics that, that are uh, complex and ones that, quite frankly, we may not even have all the answers. Sometimes Ian and I joke. What? That, I know. Sometimes we joke that we're like, well, this one feels like we're out over our skis a little bit. And that's at least once a day for us. <laughs> at least. Uh, <laughs> and so that's why we would love to hear feedback. We love to hear back on from when we post articles on Facebook, uh, the, the text line, whatever else, however else you can get in touch with us. We would love to hear. And, uh, this article we came across and every now and then it's funny. We'll send each other articles going, mm, want to tackle that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> we can feel the trepidation a little bit and this and that, yeah. but uh, Huffington post wrote this article uh, and it was this, it says New York lawmakers and New York lawmakers have been at the forefront of kind of pushing the agenda here lately with abortion and other things. New York lawmakers introduce first statewide bill to decriminalize sex work. So New York lawmakers introduced first statewide bill to decriminalize sex uh, sex work. Uh, 
and says the Stop Violence in the Sex Trades Act is a legislative package that, quote, decriminalizes and decarcerates the sex trade in New York, uh, according to the press release. If passed, it would be the first measure in the country to legalize prostitution statewide. Sex work, they said, is work and should not be criminalized by the state, uh, says Senator Julia Salazar at the Monday press conference. So I want to uh, we've got a couple audio clips I want you to hear. And then we're just going to kind of wrestle with this a little bit uh, because they're saying <laughs> I wish people could see your face right now. <laughs> what they're saying is, is that what they're doing with this act is going to help make uh, people who are doing things in the shadows. It's going to make it more legal not just more legal, but safer. So the first person I want you to hear from uh, is somebody by the name of Cecilia Gentili. Uh, part of the steering committee uh, for the organization that is driving this bill. If New York, the state of New York and the city of New York continue to utilize this narrative where we are the most progressive space in this nation, we have to show it with specific steps. And in this case, it's legislation. So are we really progressive or are we not? Uh, I guess we are about to find out. <laughs> uh, and so Cecilia is basically saying we pride ourselves in being the most progressive state in the country. Let's prove it. And then I want to hear this other one from Audacia Ray, uh, an author and a sex rights advocate. Um, and, and so let's hear what she has to say. In my 15 years in this moment, I have mourned so many peers Sex workers who are murdered by abusive partners, sex workers who die because of poor access to health care, sex workers who died by suicide, sex workers who died of drug overdoses, sex workers killed by police, and sex workers murdered by clients. And I've sat in witness at December 17th events for many years, hearing hundreds of names read of members of our community who have died. So this bill, the Stop Violence Against Sex Trades Act, is really important to me and to our entire community All right. So that's kind of the background out of New York. And uh, I was almost treated you unfairly by just going thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be okay with that. All right. Thoughts. I don't I don't have any. (laughs) What do you want to do for the next five minutes? (laughs) What did you have for dinner last night? (laughs) Yeah. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, I think it's really, really complicated. The the conversation in general makes me um, pretty sad. And I'm. I keep I keep seeing uh, the name Sanctuary for Families show up in all these articles that I'm reading, and uh, I actually didn't know a whole lot about them. Sanctuary for Families, look them up if you don't know who they are, because they uh, they make a difference in the lives of families of victims and survivors and their families, usually uh, involving the sex trade or other similar similar industries. But it, it seems like every article I'm reading, there are people, uh, and they may surprise you. I think because it's. You know, it looks like there's a strong Democratic support, but one of the articles I'm reading says only three of the 23 major Democratic candidates for president um, said that they would support decriminalization. So on one hand, they're seeing, you know, large support from the left, but then the people at the top uh, apparently aren't as mm-hmm. eager to support and they're finding it something difficult to rally around. And uh, I, at some level, I understand the case for making it safer for the people that are, you know, caught in what I think is a really destructive industry in the first place. Um, other people are saying, hey, they're consenting adults. Ultimately, who's who's at harm? 
uh, does it does it you know protect the lives of of these young girls that are otherwise in circumstances that are really dangerous? I I mean I could understand some of that case. I just think I, I think anytime we start advocating for what we already know to be a toxic system, yeah, uh, probably isn't ultimately a helpful direction. While I do certainly recognize, like I you know I have a, a cousin and, and she for a long time she's done a, a number of things, but one of the things that she's been doing for years is providing. Uh, clean needles for heroin addicts mm. and she's caught a lot of heat for it but part of what she has often said is it's really hard to treat someone who's dead mm. so by providing them clean needles it gives us the opportunity to actually counsel them and care for them and hopefully get them get them clean um, but for a lot of people providing needles in the first place feels like such a heinous act that they can't you know they can't understand yeah. an organization ever doing that this feels a little bit like that. And like, <clears throat> okay, well, it's, it's really hard to save people from this if they're, if they're dead or if they're completely incapacitated. So is I wonder if part of the thinking is by decriminalizing it, we stand a, a better sense, a better uh, opportunity to actually care for the people who are caught in really toxic systems. I don't know. It's hard for me to really even right. guesstimate if that is the end goal because it seems like what, from a lot of what I'm reading is, it, oh, the goal, the objective is not to do away with this. It's just to make it safer. And uh, I, I don't think that goes far enough. Yep. Yep. It reminds me of very early in our show, uh, the history of our show. Remember when we talked to Simone Halpin? Yeah. her name? Yep. Uh, at Naomi's house. Yep. And uh, man, I remember being so challenged by what she was saying and just not realizing that there was this this world that she described for us. Uh, and, and when I read this, it doesn't strike me that decriminalizing is good. Like it. It feels like the put. It feels like they're putting the the wrong emphasis here. It feels like the push needs to be. Then how do we uh, attack? Uh, as, how do we go at making it of protecting those people who are being exploited? How do we go about? I don't think the exploitation is going to go become less by making it legal, and uh, and then it, it, it they kind of looks like that as you go on and read the article. Uh, later on, it's more about like, well, we want the government out of our business. We can't find jobs. This is the best way to find jobs. This is two consenting adults. And it becomes less and less about safety. Uh, and, and I totally, again, it's a world I'm completely right. unaware of how it works or, right. or that it even exists. And so I do want to, this is when we talked about being a little bit out of our skis, but I do want to say, yeah, if if it's that dangerous and Simone helped us understand that, then the church needs to be getting in there and needs to be doing something. I just don't think legalizing, uh, man, that's a Pandora's box that we're opening. Well, that, and, that and legalizing is dangerous. different, different than decriminalization too. Like that, that I think is worth noting that they're not the same thing. You explain that. I think you're right, but explain that. I, I think. Well, I mean, we saw this in Colorado with uh, you know the the marijuana yeah. conversation they've been having for a long time to. To, to legalize, I mean, there's there's a whole spectrum of legal ramifications, and I think um, it doesn't sound like what they're proposing is just legal pimping. It's not a legal endorsement of the system as it is, but decriminalizing, it seems like, includes also some reforms to the I systems and structures saying. that they're, they're wanting to improve in the first yep, place. Yep. Uh, so we try hard on this show not to just be two talking heads who pretend we understand everything. Like, I think he, what I hear us both saying is, like, man, this doesn't feel right. This feels bad. This feels like a move in the wrong direction. I'll speak for myself. Feels like a move in the wrong direction. Uh, but that the church, this is one of those spots that the church needs to be stepping into instead of just pointing our fingers going, okay, how can we be part of the solution? If if this world of sex trafficking is what the people like Simone and others have told us about, 
man, that's got to break our hearts. And it's, it's really the church that needs to be stepping in and doing something. And so uh, we want you to be challenged. We want to hear your feedback. Maybe you've got uh, strong opinions on this one way or the other. Uh, we would love to hear your feedback on this. This world is messy, man. <laughs> this world is messy. And uh, we need to be thinking about the darker and the messier parts of this world. Well, for you and Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. And that music can only mean one thing. Dodgeball. <laughs> I think it can mean a lot of things, yeah. actually. We are pumping up the... I, I want to hear you sing this. I will you not made sing me, this. You made me sing last week. I didn't make Yes, you did. You're a grown man. No, you shamed me in the well, singing last week. I don't week. think that's... Let's play that back. Let's find that audio. <laughs> See if I actually shamed Brian. Uh, I probably said as much as I bet you won't sing. You know, like, I totally will I'll do that, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'll show you. I have a great singing voice. I got this. <laughs> and so, uh, anyway, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, online at eleven sixty hope dot com. Find our podcast wherever you can find podcasts. Text us at six eight six eight three. We would love to hear from you. Sometimes we tackle stuff that is hard, <laughs> and sometimes we tackle stuff that is just difficult. Like in the last segment. Uh, talking about this bill that that they're talking about going for in New York, uh, decriminalizing sex trafficking and uh, the, the sex work, I should say. Yeah, not the right, not the not trafficking. Sex trafficking. Sorry, right. I got that completely wrong. Uh, <laughs> uh, but instead, decriminalizing sex work, and we'd love to hear your opinion on that and and hear your feedback. Uh, but we like to say that with a commercial, we just make a big right turn, and so <laughs> we like to say that. I like to say that. <laughs> I've never heard you say that. I just said it. At the commercial, we like to make a big right turn. <laughs> Washington Post oh, article. Boy. Here we go. Dodgeball is a tool of oppression used to dehumanize others, researchers argue. What researchers? Let's figure that oh, out. Okay. Uh, dodgeball in phys ed classes teaches students we read to dehumanize and harm their peers. Professors from three Canadian universities said in a presentation this week That's so at the Congress of the Humanities and Social <laughs> Sciences in Vancouver. A paper on the subject is set to appear in the Journal of European Physical Education Review. When you're setting up the environment for students to learn and you introduce the idea that it's okay to slam a ball at whomever you like, now there's rules. Even if it's a, with a softball, the intention is there. Joy Butler, a professor who studies pedagogy and curriculum development at the University of British Columbia, said, when students think it's okay because they're being told it's okay to do that, what do they learn? People say dodgeball is being used as an outlet for aggression or catharsis. I suspect that this is where uh, they are learning it. Physical education classes, she says, should be an arena where teachers are helping students control their aggression and move on instead of expressing themselves with anger. So as we think about that, you know, I feel like there's there's just some things we need to think about, have in our mind about dodgeball. So, so you what can do you... dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. What? Oh. See, Not I mean, appropriate? I think it's very appropriate. I don't know that hardly anyone's going to get the reference. From Dodgeball? Yeah, I think it's. I don't think the movie is nearly as popular as you're thinking that I it is. I love that movie. How about this one? Billy Madison. We can go Billy, Billy Madison. Dodgeball time is a special time. Not just for you boys and girls, but for Miss Lippy too. So stay outside. <laughs> Let's just play clips the whole segment. That's all right. 
So as interviewers dug deeper, we learned asking students why uh, they didn't like dodgeball, why they hated dodgeball. Uh, the person came up with five uh, five reasons, exploitation, marginalization, powerlessness, cultural imperialism, and violence. So a lot of background on dodgeball. What say you, Ian Simpkins, about dodgeball? I uh, was homeschooled, so <laughs> did you? You had lots of brothers. You guys probably played dodgeball in the backyard. No, no, we didn't. No. We we were mowing lawns for money. What about as a youth pastor? I don't know if you had a gym at whatever church you were youth pastoring. I did in. not. No, uh, we, and we did a lot of athletic type stuff, and we'd have you know we'd certainly play a lot of soccer, weird, dangerous games that we invented the night of. You know, I, I'm certainly. I think uh, when I think back of, I mean, I went to public school up to fifth grade. Right. There's a lot of things about PE that I hated. Like, for example, climbing that 40 foot rope to the ceiling with the eighth inch mat at the bottom to protect us with the knot at the end of the rope just for, you know, just I'm for safe because keepings. I have a story. I got a story. Well, about that. let's hear that story then. So uh, that exact rope. I was what we would like to say as a child. I was uh I was my mother. My mother used to use the word husky. I believe, right? You love to say that on this show. Yeah, yeah that Brian husky. was husky. We're always saying and that. And so they had the two ropes that would come down. One of them was without the knots. The other one was with the knots. Oh boy! And they would be like, you know, you could choose. Always choose the knotted one, right? And I, Why? Well, it didn't matter for me because I couldn't climb even one knot. Like oh. I would just kind of hang there. And the, but the gym teacher would be like, "You have to try for a minute." And so I was one you of those just kids hung there for a minute. It was just—it's swinging back and forth, Stop. and you're just, you're just watching the gym teacher be like, "We done." He's like, 30 seconds." I'm like, "What is thirty seconds gonna do here?" Hang in there, from you got this. <laughs> what is? 30? And then everyone hit you with dodgeballs. That's what. <laughs> <laughs> what is thirty seconds going to do here? So anyway, I was that kid. Do we have a photo of this we can share on the Facebook we don't, page, but, please? But I, I I would think it's funny. Like, I'm not Mr. even embarrassed and Mrs. by Fromm, this. If you could please send me specifically a photo of Brian Fromm as a child so I can I, get on the Facebook page. I was never the one who I couldn't do the sit and reach. I couldn't do the chin ups. None of them. That was not my skill set. Well, let's put it that way. I'm legitimately sorry about that. That sounds like it was traumatizing. It really. It actually wasn't. But I, oh, okay. that was that kind of funny. <laughs> I was really bow-legged, if you want to talk about that. No, That's, no. That doesn't help you feel better? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, uh, okay, I mean, they make some okay points. In general, I think um, students should have options to opt out of some of these things. I, I mean, I definitely do understand, even as I'm reading through this, the the scene that I'm seeing is like, you know, the super hyper-athletic guys that, you know, matured faster than their other peers, and they're just demolishing everybody in there. Like, I think even in youth group, you know, there was a pretty broad myriad of, of skill set and athleticism, but it was never like, no one ever got, you know, bloody nose or anything like that. So I, I get some of the imbalance there, but to say that, oh, it's it's dehumanizing or it's, uh, what, what was the other word? That it's a tool of oppression. I don't, you could call any scorekeeping athletics a tool of oppression exactly. they're like oh well we don't want people to feel like they lost like well sometimes you lose that's you know i'm a i'm actually a big fan of like helping teach our children to lose well and to lose gracefully to understand like hey they got more points than you did and that's why we didn't get a trophy and that Ooh. doesn't mean you're any less of a person and jesus loves you as much as he did yesterday and i love you yeah. and i believe in you and we're gonna work hard but we lost and yep. i think that's i think it's okay and that's not totally the point they're making i think um but what they're essentially saying is, uh, some students are more athletic than others. You're like, yeah, that's always been the case. So maybe it's akin to our uh, our conversation with the Val Victorian. You know, like because there simply are smarter students, should we just wipe the whole 
the whole rubric away. Right. Um, or are there healthier ways to go about it? Like I, you know, was sort of athletic ish, but mostly just fast. But there were some sports mm-hmm. that they'd make us play like badminton. I'm so embarrassingly bad at it. And it was a little embarrassing, but I do remember walking away and being like, I'm never going to play that again. Yep. Let's, let's stay away from that sport. Soccer. I was okay. I'm pretty quick. It was an okay shot. Like, I have more fun doing that. It, and then, like, I got over it, but I, I don't know. I, th- I think when we start having <laughs> arguments like this, we're just going to start stripping away anything, anything. That, that reeks of any competitiveness, winners or losers. And that, to me, just doesn't ultimately seem helpful. I'm not saying we shouldn't revisit some of these things and maybe, sure. like, reconsider, you know, dodgeballs that were used 40 years ago maybe actually are dangerous. Maybe we... Invent softer dog every, balls. Every kid's gotten that rubber ball to the face. <laughs> to- totally, totally. I also, it, man, I feel like we're overthinking it. And and I, uh, I'm married to uh, my wife. Was you're a married PE to your wife. I'm married to my wife. <laughs> she was a PE teacher for the first until we had kids. But right. I'm not even sure she would agree with the statement. Physical education class should be an arena where the teachers. Uh, where teachers are helping students control their aggression and move on instead of expressing themselves through anger. I never got into dodgeball and I was like, I'm going to be angry now and take it out. Like, obviously we want all teachers to help kids process and do these things. I think you and I are both trying. We're just like, Oh, really? I had some anger though. I mean, that's honestly, that's a lot of what got me into drumming. That was like a way to get aggression out. That was really helpful for me. Yeah, I I just never walked into PE class at dodgeball time and was like, finally an opportunity to get my aggression out. (laughs) Now we're going at it like it was just fun. And uh, yeah, I get what you said before. Like if if a kid is really scared of it, then go, you know, tell the teacher and, you know, do something which else, which is, is great. Go run laps. Absolutely. Right. Like if it's about physical activity and maybe that makes me too soft. If a kid's like this really is giving me like a panic attack. Cool. Then you got to run around the gym. You got to stay active, but you can yep. do that or walk around the gym. Yep. I'm I actually am really OK with that. So I do think maybe the one asterisk of this whole story would be. You know, because it feels like the other side of the argument is like, nope, everyone plays dodgeball every time we play. Sure. Like, oh, give a kid an out. That's fine. Yes. I'm OK with that. Be active. Do something. But I, to call it a tool of oppression to me feels a little overreaching. Yep. Yep. And uh, and man, now I'm sweating from from the thoughts of you said yours was badminton. Every cool. time we walked into PE class, especially in my Husky days uh, and they made you saw the cone set up for the mile run. It was like, it was, I got to fake a stomach ache and get to the nurse oh, as see, quickly as I can. I was always pumped about that. Oh, the mile I run was it. my nightmare. Really? was my nightmare. Yeah. I could always play a good game where it was like, there was a ball and a goal and a score, but anything that was like run or climb or, or sit, no. See, no. the reason I liked those is I didn't let anybody down if I failed. It feels like a team sport, and I like missed a shot. Like that just gave me such anxiety. Like, okay. oh, I let I let everybody down. If I didn't run a good mile time, I was like, well, it's just embarrassing for me. I but, there was a stage when I was in junior high where I wasn't sure I could finish the mile run. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, that would be stress inducing. I totally and, get that. Uh, and uh, I would I would have killed just to play dodgeball at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. Again, go to our Facebook page. <laughs> Feel free to text us. Uh, we would love to hear. Uh, your your feedback. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about Yale's most popular class ever that is now free online. I think you'll be interested to know the topic of that class. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and we often come back to that music that music is uh, happy. I don't. Who did happy? 
Uh, Farrell. I just almost said Farrell. I'm so old. Farrell Katz made this song. <laughs> I'm, literally banging, I'm literally banging my head against the microphone right now. Our, what was that band? Weasel? On no, the one, hand, on on the one hand, you should be impressed that I knew it was Farrell. On the other hand, you should be just oh. ashamed that I did not actually know how to say no his name. No shame at all. I'm very proud of you. Well uh, done. But yeah, when that song came out, that song is happy, and uh, you listen to it, it makes you happy. And so uh, we'll come back to that often, but... It, this time specifically, we teased before saying this Yale, uh, their most popular class ever is now available free online in the spring of 2018. Yale psychology professor Lori Santos unveiled a new course, psychology and the good life. And the specific subject is this happiness. Santos's course became a blend of abstract and concrete. It combined both positive psychology with real life ap- application of behavioral si- behavioral science And it went on to debunk the false notions of what makes people happy, like the luxury Mercedes-Benz status symbol, and help students understand the habits they should build to lead truly happier, more fulfilled lives. The course was launched in the U.S., home to supposedly, quote, the most unhappy population in the world at one of the nation's most elite and high-pressure colleges. And it says the reaction was unprecedented. Uh, psychology and the good life became the most popular class ever taught in Yale University's 317 year history and garnered both national and international media attention. The university reportedly had troubled staffing it, pulling fellows from the school of public health and law to meet the demands. And Santos told the New York times that a stunning one in four Yale students were taking the course for reference. While most large lectures at Yale never exceed 600 students, Psychology and the Good Life enrolled 1,182 students. And that's just fascinating. You're at this high pressure, uh, one of the top, you know, three to five uh, universities in all of the country. And the course that the students are flocking to is how to be happy. Are you surprised by it? Start by, does that, do you find that surprising? I'm not surprised in the slightest, man. I don't, I don't think if anything if I've learned anything from being a pastor, I mean, I've learned a few things from being a pastor, but uh, people of all shapes and sizes, all backgrounds, all ages and stages, it seems like this is always in the top three. And it yeah. isn't specifically for people who are making this amount versus that amount who live in this neighborhood versus that neighborhood. People that by a lot of our metrics, I would think like you should already be happy. Right. I'm looking at your life from the outside your life looking would make in. Me happy. <laughs> yeah, right. How? Why are you asking me? Yeah. I'm wanting to know how to do what you do. So that that to me is actually pretty humbling when you see just the great universality. Is that a word? That is exactly a word of how um, unhappy we can be and how good we are at masking it, which I think is really that's also humbling to me because I think we've some in a lot of ways we've perpetuated this sort of fake social media happy. Which, you know, I think in the moment will we often think that will somehow make me happier by just pretending to be happier than I am. Mm. So, I, you know, I and I read an article um, about somebody who's halfway through this course and some of the things that he's talking about were like, here's some of the exercises that we're learning, you know, focus on your strengths, uh, invest in experiences, learn to savor more, express gratitude and spread kindness like. These are all things that we've talked about on the show mm-hmm. from a biblical perspective. So I find it so fascinating that Yale is, ha- you know, they're they're uh, experiencing this massive success around these principles. And I'm like, yeah, that was already in there. That was mm. these are already these are things that like theologians and mystics and poets have been saying for a long, long time. I guess I'm grateful that you know 
it's now reaching a broader audience. But it, it, it is sometimes so surprising to me that like why why does it take a Yale stamp of approval for yeah. us to really feel like, oh, so this is what I should be doing? Like, yeah, pastors have been teaching this for a long, long time. Yeah. I, you know, I find it affirming and yet sometimes a little bit frustrating. Absolutely. I get that totally. And I think as pastors, we get, like you said, we get this question a lot. People are turning to religion. Hopefully that will make you happy or money or whatever else. And we preach on this stuff. I, at least I do. And I'm sure you do preach a lot. These kind of topics come up a lot. And so you touched on it, but I would ask you, very specifically, when somebody comes to you and it's like, Pastor, uh, how do, I'm, I'm unhappy. Where is happiness found in the, however they frame it? What are some, uh, where, do, where do you point them? Uh, to ask another way, if you were teaching this course, but from a biblical side, let's say Wheaton brought you in or Judson and said, hey, pre- preach a, or teach a class on happiness in our psychology department. Yeah, right. Uh, from a pastoral sense. What are some of the things that you would make sure to touch on? What are kind of the foundations for us as Christians when we talk about we all want to be happy? Uh, so where do we go for that? Yeah, I I can't get around the fact that I would have to first talk about identity because mm-hmm. there's no amount of meditative disciplines or practices or like philosophical shifts that that I think will usurp um, a completely toxic misunderstanding of who we really are. Yeah. So I think to to say, oh, start a day with a gratitude journal or mm-hmm. learn to savor the moment more, be more generous. Those are all really, really great principles and I think very biblical principles. Um, but to do them while still believing that uh, I am the sum of my accomplishments or God only loves me if or, you know, all that kind of stuff yeah. kind of undermines. And if that's still there, um, I just don't think any amount of, you know, disciplines or exercises can undo that. Mm. So at least in my pastoral counseling, that's always kind of where it starts. And it's amazing to me how insightful people are to their own behavior, too. So if someone if you let them, if you actually I think this is hard for pastors to be quiet sometimes. We jump right to, you know, being the ones that are finding solutions and trying to fix problems. Um, But people will often share just a list of things that are kind of driving them crazy or weighing down on them. And I'm amazed at the simple question I'll ask something like, why do you think you do that? Yeah. People know. They know. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I think it's because I really don't believe this or I really struggle mm. to believe this. You're like, okay, so let's talk about that for a little bit because until we deal with that, um, I think you're you're going to feel this insatiable drive towards something. And this you know, unhappiness manifests so differently for so many different people. It's, I, you know... I, I want to be careful to not go after just the weeds above the lawn <laughs> yeah. but to actually go after the root. And so that usually takes a lot more time than people. People want quick fixes, right? Like my brother's a chiropractor and people are often coming in saying, hey, can you just give me a quick crack? And he's like, <laughs> I don't do quick cracks. That's not what my work is. You yeah. have like a long term thing that needs to be worked on. I think it's the same in, in any kind of pastoral counseling. That's fascinating. Uh, you we we throw this phrase around often. It was in this article that. The United States is, quote unquote, the most unhappy nation or one of the unhappiest nations. And do you find that surprising when you hear that? Because we are we've got affluence, we've got freedoms, we've got all sorts. You know, we have more entertainment than we've ever had. All of these things. Uh, Why do you think that is making us one of the unhappiest places to live in the world? I think we're one of the most distracted places in the world, to be mm, honest. I think all good. those things, none of them are evil in and of themselves. But I think if screw tape letters taught me anything, it's that one of the greatest tactics of the enemy is not plague or oppression or martyrdom. It's distraction. It's mm. it's just paying attention to the wrong things. 
And I think paying attention to them can often lead to obsession. So when we, you know, fixate on stuff that ultimately doesn't matter, how does that not lead to unhappiness? Right. And we start obsessing over my house isn't as nice as theirs. Or this person said something to me online two weeks ago and now I can't forget it. Mm. Like I think distraction in a lot of ways, distraction and hurry, I think are the two great enemies of spiritual health today, particularly in the West. It's good. And we have both in large supply. That's good. That's good, man. That preaches, uh, we have an answer as 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 followers of Jesus to where you know Jesus talks about abundant life and what that is. But I I would point back to what Ian said that the key to quote unquote happiness begins with knowing who you are in Christ and your identity. And that is that is just a good word. If you take anything from us today, uh, that is a good word. Well, speaking of distraction and happiness, we are going to land this plane. <laughs> We're going to land this plane, plane with just crazy stories from the Internet. It's how we always end the show. Uh, we're excited to do that. That's coming up next on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the Internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. And when we come to the end of the show... Uh, it's always nice to just kind of take a deep breath and laugh a little bit and uh, cleanse the palate, cleanse so to speak. the palate. And so always our disclaimer, our executive uh, producer, Keith Conrad, he has given us a couple articles of crazy stories from the Internet, usually from Florida <laughs> that uh, that will make you laugh, sometimes make you cringe. Uh, and uh, you can blame him each and every time. Is that a good disclaimer? I mean, we should just put the disclaimer down on on uh, like on tape and just hit play every time we start, and then you go. Yeah, we should pre-record the disclaimer. We should put that in the bump. That would be good. <laughs> it's Keith's fault. <laughs> All right, you go for and look where it's from. Speaking go first. Speaking of bump, Florida man with cocaine on his nose tells deputies <laughs> it's not his. Gosh, a Florida man was arrested after cocaine was spotted on his nose during a traffic stop on Monday. The Hillsborough County Sheriff's <laughs> Office reported that he performed a traffic stop in a vehicle where 20-year-old Fabricio Fabricio Tuarez Jimenez, I didn't get any of that right, nope. was the passenger. One of the deputies immediately noticed that Jimenez had a white powdery substance on his nose, which he recognized to be cocaine. Jimenez's nose was swabbed and a test reportedly yielded positive results for cocaine content. Jimenez was searched and cocaine was found on him. Deputies also located a backpack that contained 250 grams of marijuana. Oh, boy. Despite their findings, deputies said that Jimenez said that the cocaine on his nose was not his. He was arrested nonetheless. It's a twister! It's a twister! (laughs) I don't think that I get that one. That's a deep one, I'm sure. Is that a Judy Garland thing? Is that a... I don't know. Oh, Boy, oh boy. <laughs> I think maybe it was just labeled wrong. Pennsylvania. <laughs> Pennsylvania. I think we're about to supposed to be this one coming up here. Pennsylvania man says traffic circles causing increase in tornadoes. Well, that makes a whole lot more sense. Now. Pennsylvania. Did you delay, did you link Judy Garland to cocaine there? Though? I don't want to talk about it. I hope we play the cocaine drop for this story now. <laughs> Pennsylvania has seen more tornadoes than usual in 2019. Uh, one Pennsylvania man thinks he may know the increase, r- the cause of the increase, traffic circles. According to the news partners at the Trib, WNEP TV in Scranton, the office, has a segment called Talkback, which allows viewers to call and leave their opinions. And then, once st- and then the station airs them. This guy said this, we didn't have tornadoes here until we started putting in traffic circles. Cause, on account of, you want to know why? When people go round and round in circles, it causes disturbance in the atmosphere. 
and causes tornadoes. It's a twister. It's a twister. Oh, I thought we were going to play the other one. <laughs> nah, now I want to hear it. Oh, geez. All right. Well, Washington, D.C. Judy Garland, not like traffic circles? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Guy was, my, I was racking my brain. I was like, there's something going on here. Some layer of esotericism. Esotericism? Yes, oh, I like it. Also not a word. Washington, D.C., same saxophone stolen twice from store. D.C. police, uh, as opposed to Marvel police, were already working on a noteworthy heist when the case of the stolen saxophone hit a familiar refrain <laughs> early Sunday morning. The saxophone was initially stolen from a Northwest music store on Thursday. The instrument was promptly returned the next day, but on Sunday morning, the store owners discovered it missing again. Police provided surveillance video of a burglar breaking into the store early Thursday in the 4500 block of Wisconsin Avenue Northwest, and the store owners provided a second video in Sunday morning. You can see the thief foregoes the cash register and other valuables in favor of a saxophone before fleeing. What I wouldn't give to hear Lisa play another one of her jazzy tunes. <laughs> saxophone. Saxophone. Oh, poor Homer. That's one of my favorite Simpsons clips. I said this one to my daughter the other day. She was like, I think I want to play a new instrument. I'm like, saxophone. Did she, did she laugh? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> but I did. Of course. Uh, Maine, and you got to look this one up to see the picture. Seagull photobomb steals woman's lobster roll, goes viral on Twitter. Oh, boy. Alicia Jessup knew Friday was going to be memorable. She just didn't know why. The 34-year-old Pepperdine University professor went to New England and to try her first ever lobster roll. What she didn't plan on was capturing a now viral photo as she tr- as the seagull tried to snag her pricey sandwich as she was lining up the perfect shot. I was really embarrassed and I thought to myself, you're now that person you just wasted $21.50 <laughs> on that picture. She started her lobster roll quest on Friday, renting her car, wrapping up her conference in Vermont and going up to Maine, buying a $21.50 lobster roll t- t- went to take the picture. But as she took the picture, the seagull stole it. Is that, Judy, is that Judy Garland, too? Okay. See, All right, last I gave one. it a shot. All right. So this is a segment called Ian's Nightmares from Florida. Florida man comes home from overnight shift to find alligator waiting at front door. Oh. You got to look up this picture, too, because it's terrifying. Just imagine coming home from a 10-hour overnight shift, wanting to get into bed, and an alligator is blocking your front door. It's a real thing for one Florida man. Michael Prestige, Prestridge, Prestridge, Prestridge. Uh, had just got off work from his job at the Amazon Fulfillment Center on June 1st, tired and ready to relax. He started walking to the front door, but was greeted by an unexpected visitor, an over six foot alligator. Michael called his brother Rick immediately. I thought it would be smaller and thinner than what he was saying, but nope. Six to seven feet, fat and heavy. <laughs> Judy Garland at your front door. Oh, okay, this is this is going to carry into other days no, of the show. Today. I think it is. Just today, that would be terrifying to just see an alligator sitting there. I thought you should be terrifying to see Judy Garland on an alligator. <laughs> we have derailed. Oh, it's been a good show. We hope you have a great day. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. This is the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life.